Good. I hope you've uh, got one of these handouts uh, that looks like this. It's got a map on the front just to identify it. That'll be helpful to follow along a few things. Uh, slightly late in life, um, I've been trying to make some efforts to be slightly, a little bit more organised and about the way I do admin and process things over time. And one, one of the tools that I've, that I've learned to use a bit is this thing called Evernote. I don't know if you've come across this um, uh, application you can get for free for your computer or your, for your um, iPhone or for your smartphone or whatever called Evernote. And it allows you to uh, make notes about all sorts of things and uh, categorise them in all sorts of different ways. And one of the ways you categorise things in Evernote is um, you, you try and label them with tags um, like these ones. Um, so who, uh, where, when, and uh, where. Oh, no, I should say, no, that's the same as that. What, that should say what. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you can see how lazy it was when I was putting this together. Um, anyway, that, that's, that's quite helpful, isn't it? Because it really, it really sort of fixes down what a particular event or a particular note is going to be about. And it struck me that uh, that is kind of what uh, we need when we're, we're thinking about something like a subject area like the prophets or the prophetic books. We want to know um, who they were, these prophets. We want to know where they were doing their, their thing. We want to know when they were doing it. And we want to know what they were doing. Uh, so that's the kind of material um, that we're going to cover in this first session. Except that I'm going to add a couple to, to that. Uh, I'm going to ask how were they doing their thing. And that's going to actually turn out to be quite an important um, element of understanding um, the, the prophets, um, and also why. That's a crucial question, isn't it? You know, what, what particular relevance is this? What, were they, what was their purpose in doing what they were doing, and why is it relevant to us uh, today? Uh, so that's where we're going this morning, and we're going to start uh, with who. Now, just let me say, as we uh, look at some of this material, you'll, you'll see, especially in the, the second page of it, the, well, the third sheet of the, of the handout. There's quite a lot of information that I'm going to be going through this morning. And it's not necessary, I want to emphasise, it's not necessary for you to memorise all this stuff. Um, but if you know where to find it, uh, like as with Evernote, then it will be a useful uh, reference for you as you uh, read these books um, together. Right, so the prophets, um, who were they? Now, it's um, interesting if you uh, go through the Bible and you write down every prophet who is named explicitly, you get a list like this. And there are about 42 named prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, I've added, you can see at the the bottom there, I've added John the Baptist um, because he's got a lot of prophet-like characteristics uh, from from the New Testament. Um, so that's uh, an interesting thing to do um, but there are certain prophets amongst these who really kind of stand out if you like as pattern setting prophets and the ones I'm going to pick out very quickly at the beginning are Moses uh, prophet of the Lord Samuel he was the first great prophet once the, the, the monarchy had begun in the land in Israel and uh, then Elijah sort of archetypal prophet. Uh, So firstly, 
Uh, Moses really sets the pattern of what a prophet is all about. Um, the big characteristic, as we'll see, of a prophet is that uh, they, they are given the very words of God and speak the very words of God to the people. Of course, Moses did that big time uh, with the law. Um, so Moses, in many ways, sets the, sets the pattern for what was to come. The first great prophet. Uh, and in some ways, greater than a prophet... Um, it's interesting if you read at Numbers chapter 12 and what the Lord says um, in verses um, uh, 6 through to 8. He says, When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. So, in, in some ways, almost a super prophet. You know, this very, very intimate relationship with the Lord, such that uh, what he says is what the Lord says. Um, Samuel, obviously another very important uh, prophet. The first of the prophets within um, the, uh, the monarchy. That period of Israel's history. Uh, so, for example, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 3, uh, reading from verse 19, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and let none of his words fall to the ground. There's an emphasis on, on the words again, on the speaking. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And uh, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and there he revealed himself to Samuel, Samuel through his word. So that's again, is telling us something about the essence of a prophet. Although if you were to describe a prophet, probably the prophet, in, in terms of their appearance, probably the prophet you'd, have, you'd, you'd pick would be Elijah. Um, he, he, in some ways, becomes the archetypal uh, prophet. You know, he wears the uniform, if you like, and that idea is uh, picked up uh, by John the Baptist at the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, now if we go back to this list... Uh, so they're all the named prophets in the Old Testament. Um, not all of them have prophetic books named after them, though. So if we just take away the ones that don't, we're left with those ones. Uh, and uh, these are, are often called the latter prophets. And you can see why they're called the latter prophets, um, because they only appear from the 8th century um, onwards. The former prophets... Um, are uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel and Kings in the Bible. Uh, these are the, the latter prophets. That's uh, one way that these books um, are described. Uh, four of those are what you might call major prophets. And uh, that doesn't mean very much more than the fact that they, um, the, those prophetic books are particularly long. Okay, those are the, the big books. So we're talking about Isaiah, which we're going to be looking at a little bit more later in the morning. Uh, Jeremiah, which is uh, actually, even though it's got fewer chapters, is actually longer than Isaiah, than Ezekiel. And then possibly Daniel. Daniel's a bit of an oddity because actually in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, if you have a Hebrew Bible like this, Daniel doesn't appear with the other prophets. It appears in a different part of the Hebrew Bible in the writings. So it's slightly different, nonetheless. Um, he is described as a, as a prophet. Um, so, those, uh, so we've got 16 of, 16 of those, if you include Daniel. Uh, sort of four big ones. 
uh, of which there's a big three, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and then uh, 12 what are called minor prophets, which is not to say that they're not important, it's just that their books tend to be a lot shorter. Right, now when and where, that's the next um, issue. Now, it's uh, helpful, I think, to, to have some idea of, at least in, in a broad sense, that the history of what's going on um, in Israel. Um, and the, the first thing to, to note, really, is that the, that the latter prophets are all doing their thing after the division of the monarchies following Solom- Solomon. So you might uh, know this already. Uh, but after David and Solomon, uh, the, in the next generation, the nation splits into a southern kingdom, uh, Judah and Benjamin are with them too, and then a northern kingdom, which is all the other tribes. And uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a civil war that's going on too. So it's a, it's a really um, sad and tragic moment in uh, the history of Israel when the, when the nation is divided like this. So you have Judah in the south, and it kind of occupies this kind of area uh, here, and then you have, uh, it can be slightly confusing, can't it? But the, the northern kingdom is called, is called Israel. Um, very often when you come across the name Israel in the scriptures you have to be very careful to work out from the context exactly what's being referred to at that point uh, sometimes the name Israel is used to refer to the whole of God's people uh, we'll see an example of that a little later but very often it's just talking about the northern, the northern kingdom these um, the ten tribes in the, in the north so they're, all, they're all doing their thing after that in fact well after that um, so Amos Jonah and Hosea prophesied in Israel, and uh, so up here, and Israel falls in 722 BC, and Samaria is uh, taken over by the Assyrians, and that plays part of, part of the story in Isaiah as well, it's kind of coterminous with that. And then Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah prophesied in Judah, down in the southern kingdom. Um, that's up to the point where the, the southern kingdom uh, falls, which is 587 BC, that with the destruction of, of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel and Ezekiel were actually taken to Babylon before the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC, and they prophesy in Babylon. And if you ever do some work, any work on, on, on Ezekiel, that's, this is really important to get your head around um, that, that, that what happens at, in, at that time is a, is a whole sequence of, of invasions and attacks on Jerusalem. Um, in the first wave, some of the noblemen are taken away, and that includes Daniel, that's about 605 BC. In the second wave, uh, some of the, the more important people are taken away, and that includes Ezekiel. And it's about nine years later, though, that the... the this destruction happens and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and the temple is destroyed. So Ezekiel is doing most of his prophecy in that kind of intermediate time. He's doing it from Babylon against Jerusalem, saying that Jerusalem is going to be uh, destroyed. We'll come back to that um, a little later. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi and possibly Joel, although um, nobody's very sure about Joel, are post-exilic prophets. So in these waves of attack from uh, Nebuchadnezzar various um, uh, groups are taken off to Babylon there's another group that comes after the destruction of 
uh, Jerusalem in 587. So they're, they're, they're stuck in Babylon, which is sort of way, way over there. Um, but uh, after a certain amount of time, after the Babylonian uh, Empire, in fact, has been taken over by the, the Persian Empire, um, some of them are in phases allowed back uh, to Judah, and that's the time when Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Joel are doing their thing. And they come back to this much smaller um, area around Jerusalem. Remember, it used to be called Judah. Under the Persians, it changes its name to Judea. That's why it's called Judea in the New Testament. And it's a much, you can see it's a much smaller area, quite a small area of land around Jerusalem, heavily kind of surrounded by all sorts of potentially hostile people. And you get that, uh, that real sense of danger when you're reading um, books like Malachi. This, in fact, was still under officially under Persian rule. Okay, so they're not going back uh, to form an independent state. Uh, so that's the that's the after the exile uh, period. Now, all of this history is all very interesting, isn't it? Like I said, you don't need to absolutely memorise it, but it's useful to know where to find it when you need it. Good. Okay, so that's uh, what have we done? We've done who. And we've done when and where, uh, what is next. Uh, first of all, what were they? And I think you probably um, picked up already, you could describe a prophet like this. A prophet is something like a mouthpiece for God. So here's a, a very famous example from the beginning of Jeremiah, as Jeremiah is being commissioned as a prophet by the Lord. And uh, this is what happened. So the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. Uh, see, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy it and overthrow, to build and to plant. So this is the key thing, isn't it? I put uh, my words in your mouth. Such that when Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, it is... Thus says the Lord. It is the Lord uh, speaking. There's no distinction uh, to be made. And that gives the prophets an enormous, extraordinary authority. In some ways, a divine authority. I point you over nations. Look at this. And kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So that's what the prophets are doing. They're they're God's means of speaking to um, his people. Uh, What was their message? Well, you might think from the volume of material that there is in, in, in the Bible, in these books, and some of them are enormous. You know, it takes a long time to read uh, the book of Isaiah, even longer to read uh, Jeremiah. You might think that the message that they were preaching was very uh, complicated, but actually it boils down to something very simple. Uh, in fact, I think you can boil it down to uh, four main points. It goes something like this. Um, the prophets will say to the people, the Lord, uh, remind the people that the Lord formed a covenant relationship uh, with them in the past and gave, gave them the land. So there's a lot of material reminding them of their, their covenant relationship with the Lord. Um, but then, uh, the harsh point, but then the indictment, if you like, you have turned away from that, from him, into wickedness and you're now under the threat of judgment and exile. Okay, so a lot of material around that kind of area, of course. But, and this is an important but, of course, the Lord is planning a new future and a new hope, and uh, one that's going to deal with all of this 
this problem of wickedness, if you like. It's going to deal with the problem of the human heart. And it's also uh, going to fulfill all his promises of the past and spread his glory across the nations. And uh, this new thing that God is going to do, uh, instead of being a temporary thing, is going to be a permanent thing. It's going to last forever. And then, finally, um, so, therefore, trust him, uh, turn align yourself uh, with that while you still can. Although it's very interesting, this last point doesn't come that often. So if you take a book like Ezekiel, in fact it only comes twice in the entire book, this call to turn back to the Lord, um, which is, I think is quite remarkable. It, which it, it, it kind of, well, I'll come back to that later. It kind of highlights that this is the main bulk of the message, um, seeing that the justice of the Lord in judging wickedness uh, seeing the um, purposes of the Lord nonetheless still going to be fulfilled in the future. Um, if you have the chance to turn and align yourself with this new thing, then do it. However, what we'll find is that uh, that is not always possible. Uh, but for those for whom it is possible, uh, then do it, and do it um, urgently. Now, um, I want to, uh, you to see that for yourself um, in Ezekiel chapter 11. So if you've got Bibles in front of you. In Ezekiel chapter 11. <coughs> so I struggled here. I, I thought we wouldn't do something in Isaiah because we've got some Isaiah later on in the morning. Um, it's hard to find those four things in one passage that often they're, they're quite scattered across, scattered across the book. Um, but I think we'll find at least three of them in chapter 11 of Ezekiel. Now, as we, as we turn to look at this together, and I'll get you to read um, this together around your tables in a moment, uh, you, you'll um, automatically, immediately see some of, the, some of the difficulties, some of the obstacles about engaging with these, this prophetic writing. It is quite strange stuff. It takes a while to get your head around it and into what's going on. And in fact, if you didn't know some of the context of chapter 11, it would be very hard to understand what was going on in this chapter. Uh, what's basically been going on in the book of Ezekiel up to this point is that from it, this is the end of a vision that Ezekiel is ha- having that began back in chapter 8. Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, but he's been transported in his vision back to Jerusalem to see what's going on there. Okay, remember, this is before the fall of Jerusalem. Um, and there's a lot of wickedness going on in the city, and he sees various instances of this wickedness. What happens towards the end of the vision is he gets taken to a, a gate, one of the city gates, where he meets these 25 men, they're probably businessmen, who are sort of discussing the business of the day. They're having a bit of uh, business gossip, if you like, uh, with one another. And he enters into a little exchange with them, what you might call a little uh, dispute with them. Now, uh, just to help you read this, uh, when we come to it in a moment, um, so this image here of a pot and its meat. Okay. Uh, Jerusalem is described, uh, the people of Jerusalem are described like the, the meat within the pot. Now you might think, at first glance, that it would be a bad thing to be the meat in the pot. But no, actually, in this instance, it's a good thing. It means you're protected. Okay, so if you're... <laughs> if you're you're not going to be eaten by wild animals, actually. The meat in the pot is the safe meat. 
right? The meat outside the pot is, gets um, taken by the wild animals, kind of representing the nations around. So that's going to be important to bear in mind in understanding what's going on here. So that's one of the things you need to get your head around. Um, here, the house of Israel, this is one of those confusing bits, we've got to work out what the house of Israel is. Here it stands for that the people of God, more generally, rather than just the northern kingdom again, uh, the people of God, and in this case, it means the people of God who've been taken into exile already. Okay, so those who are uh, already in Babylon or scattered in other, other nations. Right, so with that in mind, um, have, a go, have a look at this. Don't worry if we don't get all of this. It might seem slightly hard going um, to start with, especially this early in the morning. Uh, but here are the questions to think about. Uh, where are these people, these businessmen, presuming upon their covenant relationship, thinking that they're perfectly safe uh, where they are? Um, I need reminding about that. Uh, where's the warning of judgment? And uh, where is the expression of hope? And I want you to glance forward a little bit in the book, uh, a couple of chapters, uh, to chapter 14, verse 6 as well, and you'll see that there's an exhortation to turn back to the Lord, but I want you to think about who that exhortation is actually given to. Uh, and we'll come back to that later. So, um, if you're not in a group of people, you might like to uh, join, and uh, yeah, read that chapter together. Have a quick look at those questions. We'll just spend 10 minutes on this and get back together in a moment. Okay. We don't have that long this morning. So um, you can uh, pursue that chapter uh, more depth at your leisure. <laughs> just some, some, quick, some quick answers though uh, where, did, where do we see in chapter 11 uh, these 25 men presuming upon, presuming upon their, their covenant status presuming upon their safety where, where, verse 3 verse 3 is where they're, just, they're describing themselves um, as the meat in the pot, the meat that's protected. Um, so it's not the time for, for, for building or making houses. Just at the moment, they're thinking, we uh, just need to sort of wait in our protected place here in Jerusalem until, the, if you like, the storm blows over, and then we can get on with our business. That's the kind of gossip that's going on um, at the city gate at this point. Um, and you can see that uh, also picked up, I think, in uh, verse 15. So this is what the Lord says that they're. Yeah, these are people who are saying that they are, um, they are protected. Um, the land was given to us as our possession. No, it's ours, not those people in exile. Uh, but actually the Lord then says it's the people in exile uh, who are going to get the inheritance, who are going to get, uh, who have the hope. Whilst the people in Jerusalem who have uh, no hope. So where do we see the, the judgments uh, meted out? The warning of judgments. Yep, okay. So it begins in verse 8 and goes on for quite a number of verses. Uh, it's warning of judgment very specifically against uh, Jerusalem. And where do we see the where do we see the hope in this chapter? 
Yep, that's right. So it's much more towards the end, isn't it? So from verses 16 uh, through to 20. And you'll see it's very remarkable, isn't it? That the hope is a, is a radical hope. So verse 19, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them and I'll remove them from their, their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Uh, so these hearts that have been quick to turn away from the Lord are going to be replaced in the, in the new future with hearts that won't. And, um, of course, we get much more of that in, later on in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 36 as well. <coughs> so it's interesting, isn't it? Um, and if uh, we had time, we could look at uh, 14 verse 6 as well. The exhortation to turn is not actually given to the people in Jerusalem. It's in, 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 in a way, it's too late for them. Okay, the judgment has been decreed, the judgment is going to come. There's no escape. Uh, the exhortation to turn comes to the people in, in exile. They're the ones with the opportunity to take hold of this new hope. Um, it's still, uh, they still need to turn away from them. They still need to distance themselves from what's been going on in Jerusalem. They still need to turn back to the Lord. But if they do, they can be part of this uh, new hope. That's a common kind of pattern that you'll find across the prophets. Right, uh, what's next? Right, now I think what we've already started to pick up from that is that how the prophets go about their business is really important. The message itself is quite simple. You might have thought, well, why didn't they just say that? You know, it would have been three verses or whatever. But actually, we've got this vast amount of material um, saying it over and over again in different ways and in different circumstances. So the how matters enormously. Now, I could say lots and lots about this, um, but I think it would, that would risk a lot of confusion. So I'm just going to pick out a few things. Um, here are some obvious ways that the prophets might do their business. They might speak what are called oracles or prophetic announcements. We've seen that in uh, chapter 11 here. Um, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse um, 5 and 7, for example. Where is it? Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon me and told me to say, this is what the Lord says. And, uh, verse 7, therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Yeah, very straightforward, thus says the Lord. Um, very often an oracle um, is one of the ones that, 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 that kind of direct speech from the Lord. But the prophets may make other announcements that are, are have the same authority, same weight, um, but don't have that um, formula in front of them. So that's one way that they'll, they'll do it, and of course that's very common right across the prophetic um, material. There are these occasional exhortations, as we've seen, chapter 14, verse 6, um, to turn back to the Lord, to turn away from idols. Um, it's that basic idea of turning. Sometimes in English translations that's translated repent. Um, it's better just to think of uh, turning, of turning away from turning away from something that's wicked, turning back to the Lord. Um, allegory and symbol. So we've seen that already with these symbols of um, the meat and the pot. And the prophetic material is full of this kind of symbolic language. Um, it's very, very colourful. It can be confusing at times, and we have to work hard at it sometimes. But it's extremely colourful. Um, so it's important for us to learn, in some way, to love that. To love the kind of colour that you get in the prophets, and very often there's a kind of dark humour behind it as well. 
that's worth uh, tuning into. Um, there are commissions within uh, the, the prophets, so the beginning of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is commissioned to be a prophet. We've seen an example from Jeremiah already, Jeremiah chapter 1, where he's commissioned to be a prophet, very important commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, that performs a very important role, doesn't it? Because it, it emphasises the, the, uh, the, the relationship between the prophet and the Lord, that the prophet is being sent in the name of the Lord. And uh, we'll often summarise the message, so those are very important parts of the book to uh, focus on and uh, think about. Uh, the prophetic material are full of songs, poetry, laments. They can be happy songs, praise songs, um, Isaiah chapter 12, for example, or they can be laments, there are probably more of those. You know, lament, grief at what's happened, grief about the judgement that's coming. Um, plenty of those as well. Uh, disputations, you know, people arguing about things. We've seen one of those in chapter 11. So Ezekiel comes and he argues with the people at the gate. Um, very often the Lord will argue with his people through the prophets. Uh, visions as well. There's an amazing vision, of course, in Isaiah chapter 6 and uh, quite a number throughout the book as well. Um, and Ezekiel is punctuated by these very dramatic visions. And uh, they're showing us something behind the scenes, if you like. The the prophet is showing us uh, some reality that we wouldn't otherwise see. Uh, It might be um, the sort of cosmic realities of things, or it might be just, as in the case of uh, Ezekiel going from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem, just seeing what's happening in Jerusalem and the horror of what's happening in Jerusalem. Um, There is some narrative, you know, sort of basic historical storytelling. Um, So there are a couple of patches of that in Isaiah. And uh, all of the prophetic books have this sort of on occasion. Um, so that's part of it too. So it's all within a, within a setting, within a storyline, if you like. Um, but those are the... Sorry, just get back in. Those are a summary of the, the main kind of ways uh, the prophets will do their thing. Now, we could say much, much more about that. So I've got a book here, for example, on Isaiah that has an appendix which has uh, maybe 50 different categories of the way a prophet might... Speak. So some scholars get very excited about that, trying to classify exactly how. I tend to be German actually. I don't know why that is. Anyway, some scholars like doing that, but anyway, I'm not sure how helpful that is, particularly just to, just to have some broad ideas. It's usually pretty obvious when you, when you come to it what kind of literature is going on here. Good, so that's the how. The how is going to be really important. So when you're, when you're doing this together, the message is simple. You should be able to work out what the message is. Uh, the how is really important. Why is the prophet doing it in this particular way? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the question to be asking all, all, all the time. How is this going to affect people? How is this going to get under the skin of, of the people to get the message home? That's the kind of question to be asking all the time as you're reading this material. Right, now finally, why? So um, this is obviously uh, going to be uh, crucial to get our heads around we're going to understand um, what this is all about and what the point is of reading this material. And the first thing to say, as we've already seen from Ezekiel, it's, it's often uh, the prophecy is not for the benefit of those being prophesied against. So in Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel is prophesying against Jerusalem. And that serves a purpose. 
um, I guess, and hardening the hearts of those who are there and maybe reinforcing what's going on. Um, but the, the offer of repenting and turning, turning back is not given to those in Jerusalem, it's only given to those in exile. And this is a, this is a pattern you'll find across the prophets. So we've seen that in Ezekiel already, uh, but we find it in Isaiah as well. So Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is commissioned to go and prophesy to Judah, and he is told, up front, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to listen to you. Uh, extraordinary chapter in some ways. In some, many ways, Isaiah's prophesying against Judah is not for their benefit. It still serves a purpose in its context. And it's actually a, a purpose of judgment, isn't it? It actually hardens people's hearts as they, as they continue to reject um, the word of the Lord, even when they're warned about the dangers to come. Okay, but it's not for their benefit. It's not going to bring them into the new hope that um, God is bringing about. Likewise, we what it's sometimes called the oracles against the nations. So there are big chunks of the prophetic books that are judgment warnings against the nations surrounding uh, Judah um, or surrounding um, the people in exile. Um, whole sequences of them. And again, it seems, it seems obvious when you start to think about it that these, although they sound like they're spoken to the nations, actually, they're not literally directly spoken to the nations. Uh, so the prophets don't go around these different nations speaking this message. Rather, what's happening is that, uh, that the people are allowed to listen into God's judgments against the nations. It's not for the nation's benefits, it's for the people's benefits so that they don't place their trust in these other nations around, but only in the Lord. So again, the, the, it's, um, the, the judgment may be spoken to the nations, but it's not for the nations. It's actually for the people, not to trust the nations. So it works indirectly like that. So that's a common um, pattern across the prophets. So what is this? What is the purpose of this listening in to judgment being spoken against somebody else? What is the point of that? I want to suggest that there are two reasons why um, the prophets might be doing that. The first is that um, that God's people would do this, dissociate themselves from those who have turned away from the Lord or who are otherwise under his judgment. So as um, Ezekiel comes back to Babylon after his vision and tells them everything uh, that he's been shown by the Lord, uh, one of the key purposes of that is that those in exile will say, we want nothing to do with what's going on in Jerusalem anymore. That is not where we're going to find our identity and hope anymore because that's idolatry and it's wicked and it's under judgment. So that's the idea of dissociating yourself from something um, that is terrible. Then, of course, um, the counterpart to that, to align or realign with the great new future the Lord is bringing about and seeking his mercy and uh, eager to serve. So let's see if I can... um, uh, we, we can picture that a bit. So on the one hand, we've got this part of the message, we've got the wicked under judgment, the, the idolaters, those who have turned away from the Lord under judgment, that's a big chunk of the message. And on the other hand, we've got God's wonderful new future uh, being held out. Um, it's, in, it's in sketch form in the prophets, but nonetheless, it, you can see that it's wonderful. And then there are some people in the middle, if you like, uh, having to decide which way they're going to turn. Uh, so in Ezekiel, it's those in exile who've got to decide whether they're going to 
stick with Jerusalem, which is under judgment, or whether they're going to align themselves with this new future uh, with the Lord. So the prophetic material, that the book of Ezekiel, is designed to do two things. One is that they might break their links with Jerusalem, break their links with those under judgment, and then forge new links, forge a new alignment with God's uh, wonderful new future. Okay, so it goes, uh, so that he's trying to move them over here. Okay, so that's, that's what he's trying to do. That's the, that's the happy outcome uh, from the book of Ezekiel. Now, um, just to clarify something within that, so that, just to think about how this dissociation works. Uh, we're going to do this very carefully, I think. So we're shown all sorts of wickedness and pride uh, through the prophetic books. And we'll find that very uh, powerfully in Isaiah in all sorts of different ways. And our first reaction to that might be something like this. It might be something like uh, responding to the Lord saying, you are right to judge these people. And that's a good reaction. You can see that, to see the justice of the judgment that's coming. That's one thing we should see. And uh, it's probably right to say this too to an extent. I want nothing to do with those people there who are doing those things. However, on its own, that's not enough, is it? That, that is, um, that's a bit too Daily Mail, if I could put it that way. Um, that's a bit too sort of disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, isn't it? That's, this is somebody else's problem that I want nothing to do with. Rather, more what's happening is that we see dis- uh, wickedness and pride being exposed within the prophets, but then realise that actually, to an extent, we're looking in a mirror as we're doing that and it is exposing a lot of wickedness and pride in ourselves at the same time. So, we can then get a slightly different reaction, don't we? So, yes, you are right to judge. It's absolutely just and right that you are judged. But now the reaction is much more personal as it's, woe is me, have mercy. And that's the kind of reaction that you find, for example, in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, as he confronts the holiness of the Lord. That's his first reaction. Woe is me, because I am um, a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. That's the correct uh, reaction. So the dissociation is not just saying, I want nothing to do with you, although that's part of it. It's also saying, I I want nothing to do with these parts of myself who are like that. It has a humbling effect uh, and a a cry for mercy that then comes from that. Good. Now, how does this all apply from a... I need to finish very quickly, but I'll just say a couple more things. Um... Uh, how does it apply from a Christian point of view? Remember, these are the two things, dissociation and realignment, and that's what the prophets are doing. Um, I think in it, from a Christian point of view, we're thinking about the, you know, the difference that the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus makes um, in this new circumstance. Uh, this first one, I think, carries over quite readily. You know, so we look back in history at this kind of wickedness, and um, we see some of that wickedness reflected in ourselves, and uh, we should be drawn to say, I want nothing to do with it, and woe is me, Lord have mercy. So that sort of transfers over fairly readily. Um, it's this second part that receives wonderful new clarity um, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the, so the second part gets refined and clarified. The new hope is in Jesus Christ alone, and outside of him, in fact, it's exclusive. Uh, outside of him um, uh, lies only no hope and only judgment. So all of that gets clarified. That's the thing to um, talk about. 
One very quick example, this is from Matthew. This is Matthew preaching um, Isaiah to the people of his day. He says to the Pharisees, Isaiah was right when he prophesied again about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then Jesus called the crowd and, to him and said, listen and understand. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? So Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. But you go back to Isaiah 29 from where this comes from. And of course, Isaiah at the time was not prophesying against the Pharisees um, in Jesus' time. He was prophesying against Judah um, in the 8th century BC. And yet, Jesus can say, well, actually, the same judgment applies to you. It carries over um, in a very distinct way. And as, as Jesus does this with the Pharisees, he does it within the listening of the crowd. The Pharisees are simply offended by this. It doesn't have a good effect on them, this warning of judgment. But for the crowd, it's much more open. They have the possibility of getting on board the new hope that uh, Jesus has, is just Jesus is setting up. And interestingly, in the next episode is the, is the episode of the Canaanite woman who comes to him and is saved through faith. Uh, so that's one example of how to apply the prophets from uh, the Lord Jesus himself. Um, and it's interesting, I think, in the books of Galatians and Hebrews, what you find is actually the pattern of those books is very similar to the, to the prophets. Remember, from Ezekiel, the message in Ezekiel was, have nothing to do with Jerusalem, line yourself up with a new hope. It's interesting, when we're, on Thursdays, when we're doing uh, Ezekiel in the mornings and Galatians in the afternoon, it occurred to me, actually the books are very, very similar, because the message of, of Galatians is very similar. He's saying to the Galatians... Look, you're at severe risk because you're in danger of slipping back to Jerusalem, slipping back to where you were before, and something that's under judgment. In fact, you need to realign yourself with the new hope that you have begun to find in, in Christ Jesus. It's pretty much the same kind of idea. Um, and what defines the new hope now is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So you abandon him, then that's effectively like slipping back um, to the um, under judgment as things were before. And the same pattern applies in Hebrews as well. These are people at risk of slipping back, drifting back and abandoning um, the supremacy of Christ and uh, not understanding Christ as the great high priest who has come to bring this wonderful new hope. So, um, here we go. Here's the summary. Who got 15 or 16 uh, men from Isaiah to Malachi? Uh, plus we might stuff Daniel in there as well. Uh, where and when? Israel before 72 BC, Judah up to 587 BC, Babylon in the post-exile of Judah. Um, what? They're speaking very God's, God's very words to the people. And uh, this is, your wickedness has put you under judgment, but I'm nonetheless bringing about a great new future. How, in as many ways as possible, as God says, what you pick up very quickly from reading these books. He's saying that in as many ways as possible to get the message through. That's the thing you need to work at as you're looking at a particular part of a prophetic book. And why? That the readers might dissociate from the wicked and the idolatrous and align themselves to God's new future. And we know, gloriously, that that's fulfilled exclusively uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Good, I ought to stop because I've run over time. Um, I'll pray. Shall I pray? <coughs> Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for those, uh, first for those amazing words at the beginning of, of Jeremiah. I have put my words 
in your mouth. What a blessing it is to have the very words of God like this written out in front of us and recorded for our benefit. So we pray that for the right degree of awe and um, openness and willingness to listen as we engage with this material, you know, Lord, how hard we find it to do that. You know that we find it a big effort to do that. But we pray that we would because they are your words and they are vital to us. It is vital for us to see what we should not align ourselves with, vital for us to see what we should shun and turn from, and vital for us to see the new hope that becomes crystal clear in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would work through these books over the coming term to do those very things and bring about faith and perseverance in your people here in this church family. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>